0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's
1: begin.
0: So early. Uh, <laughs>
1: it's only We're still on double digits. Well I think you
0: can definitely tell from listening to that how much fun you had at these parties because the joy in your voice is very apparent. <laughs> From the tone, from the speed of your speech. And I just talking so fast. Yeah. I know,
1: I'm like. Blah, 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 blah.
0: Yeah, definitely. I want. Yeah, the tape wasn't sped up. That was actually how fast you were really talking, right?
1: <laughs> and we all tended to do that. We just, I, you know, yes, yeah, so we were amped up. We weren't even on speed actually. There, we, it was just, um, I think, acid. Yeah, I think it was maybe just acid at that point.
0: It's Friday night, and we have to ask an important question: Do you know where your teenagers are? This could be the night your child ventures into a secretive and potentially dangerous world, the world of the rave. Teenagers across the country know what that word means. Tonight, 2020 goes undercover to give parents the
1: inside story.
0: Folks have been staying up all night dancing, ever since someone learned how to bang two sticks together. The ritual of making repetitive sounds while ingesting mind-altering substances doesn't just go back further than human civilization. It might've helped create it. The experience creates bonding and cohesion between participants. Those are the elements you need if you're gonna build a society together. A lot has changed over the past 5000 years. But when the conditions are right, you can still feel something sacred in a beat that pulses all night long. And you can still feel the awe of losing yourself in the group as your identity melts away. And you get a brief glimpse of a vision greater than what one person can take in with their own two eyes alone. The transcendent power of music will always be a mysterious force. In some ways, the heyday of the rave scene during the 1990s was nothing new. Like I said, people have been dancing all night long in secretive gatherings forever. But in other ways, there's never been anything quite like it and there never will be again. The rise of electronic music coincided perfectly with the rise of new drugs like ecstasy and ketamine. There were plenty of empty warehouses and factories because the American economy was still responding to the globalization that emptied those buildings in the first place. And those buildings hadn't been chopped up or knocked down to make live-work lofts or server farms or biotech clusters or legal weed grows yet. One more crucial factor, cell phone cameras and social media didn't exist yet because nothing kills an underground scene faster than overexposure. Of course it all came crashing down eventually. That was inevitable. And now it lives on in different forms. Festivals and clubs, Burning Man and renegade parties under highways and in the hills just last weekend some east bay kids threw a rave in the forest up at park but there was something unique about 90s raves when everything was so fresh and the scale of underground parties was (laughs) absolutely massive my guest today samantha durbin grew up in oakland was a hardcore party kid starting around 96 and just came out with a memoir called Raver Girl. If you look on YouTube at the few videos that exist of these parties, the videos aren't that impressive. It's dark. You can't really see what's going on other than flashing lights and flailing bodies. The sound is all blown out like this. So, if you really wanna know what it was like to be there, Samantha's book is about as close as you'll get. Oh, and that was her voice that you heard at the top of the show. She used to bring a little recorder to parties to catch snippets of conversation. And you'll be hearing more of that later in the show. But for now, let's get into the interview. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Hey, DJ, bring that beat back. Okay, Sam, before we get into talking about raves, tell me a little bit about your life before you started partying. What kind of things were you interested in before you got kind of obsessed with uh, like dancing in warehouses all night long?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I grew up in Oakland, Um, grew up in the hills over by the Oakland Zoo, and I had a very blissful, um, lovely childhood. Um, I had two older brothers, two parents. So it was kind of your typical, I would say, American upbringing, you know, upper middle class. So it was a very loving environment. And then adolescence hit. (laughs) And that's when I think just the rebel kind of came out. Um, I, yeah, you
0: mentioned one of your first crushes was Axl Rose.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. So I was crushing on Axel when I was like 10, which was my girlfriends were like, what? They were still like listening to New Kids on the Block. And uh, I like New Kids on the Block. Actually, that was my first concert at the Oakland Coliseum. And then I don't know how I discovered Guns N' Roses. I think MTV probably. Yeah. Um, and... It just, I was like kind of an early bloomer in that way. I was just really attracted to this edgy stuff.
0: Well, you started going to raves when you were pretty young. So mm-hmm. tell me about that because you and I both went to high school in the 90s before the internet really mm-hmm. kind of took over culture. It wasn't like you could just log on and find out about things. Raves were sort of like a hidden world. Um, mm-hmm. You sort of had to know people to find them, especially when you were on the younger side, like you were when you started going to parties. So... How old were you? How did you find out about it? Tell me about your entry into the, into the rave world.
1: So it was sophomore year of high school. And at that point, I was a drama kid. And I had nabbed an older boyfriend. Uh, he was a jun- uh, senior. And um, he was a total fox. And I couldn't believe that he was interested in me. And it was like big ego boost. So I started dating him and, you know, one day he was like, hey, do you want to try to go to this underground party this weekend? And I had already kind of been dating him only like a month or so. So I couldn't say no, right? <laughs> I like, wanted to impress him and wanted to be with him. So I actually hadn't really heard of them yet. And then um, I had another girlfriend who was dating a senior who was a friend of his and she had actually been to a couple so we had, like, our little crew, right? And because she'd been to a couple, she was just kind of my guide. You know, how are we going to do this? Are we going to sneak out? So she kind of helped to, like, spearhead the whole operation. And she was from San Leandro. And Didn't you
0: guys end up doing the classic, like, I'll tell my parents I'm sleeping at yeah. your house, you tell your parents? You... no, Vice versa or we something did... like that?
1: I believe it was just the classic... I'm sleeping at her house and we snuck out.
0: Okay, got it.
1: Yeah, because her parents were like more lax. Yeah, my parents definitely.
0: Did you have to climb out a window?
1: How did we sneak out of her
0: house? I, think, so I remember doing that a couple times.
1: Yes. We I climbed out of windows at my house because I had to be like it depended on the house. You know, yeah. if there was like a secret way to get out. Her parents, I think, were one of those that like went to bed early. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, OK, good night. We're just going to hang out in Stephanie's room. Well, yeah. that's the thing
0: about raves is that they usually took place during the exact same hours that parents would be asleep. Yeah, so you'd totally. get there about midnight and then you would go home right when the sun is coming up. Yeah.
1: And like <laughs> sometimes, you know, that's how it was. You just would like come home and the parents would be like, oh, OK, I hear them. They're obviously safe. Um, that wasn't the case with my parents. But um, I usually ended up doing the classic I'm sleeping at so-and-so's house. And um, but with this first rave. So then, yeah, so we snuck out. And we met them. You know, the guys picked us up like down the block, and um, they already had they already had everything. They already had house music playing in the car. They already had called the hotline. So I didn't. I was just along for the ride for this one.
0: Right, because before um, raves really kind of got massive, you had to go to like the checkpoints. and they would give you like the map yeah. location. And sometimes it was almost like a uh, treasure hunt to exactly. find these locations.
1: Yeah, my first was definitely in the spirit of a pure rave, which I have since like been obsessed with the pure raves when they started in the eighties in the UK and they all had like a map point it was called. And you had to find, you know, you had to call a number to get the map point and then you'd go to the map point. So our map point for that first rave was a donut shop in Oakland. And by then, I was, like, already feeling my acid. So, you know, something was kicking in. I was definitely starting to feel a bit, like, warpy. (laughs) Um, When we got to the donut shop, because the lights were really bright, and the donuts were like Willy Wonka. (laughs) And, um, yeah. And then our boyfriends called us and they were like over here girls and they were with these two party kids um, with like a cash box and um, a box of donuts and um, so we you know gave them I think it was only like five dollars again it was more in the spirit of pure so like wasn't that expensive to get in and then they gave us like a written paper with the directions and then um, we got back in the car and then we're just in this neighborhood with just a bunch of warehouses. And we parked and then we approached the warehouse. We knew that it was the right warehouse because there was just like a few people like standing outside and um, they looked like party kids and I mean, you always
0: know you're at the right place when you start walking towards like a nondescript warehouse and you can kind of hear that yes. muffled like
1: <laughs> exactly and like if, if you've heard that <laughs> so many times in your life it's just like embedded in your like cells and again,
0: yeah i went to a party up in a park a couple months oh. ago in the middle of the night and we were walking around in the pitch black looking at this party and i was like everyone just be quiet and yeah, like sure enough know. like way off in of the distance you can be like <clears throat> yeah
1: you follow the base you just kind
0: of just follow that base right you follow exactly. the base and so yeah so
1: like I'm checking out the people but then you know I hear this like thudding coming from inside the building and then we went in you know it was kind of like that moment it's so cinematic it's like you're going down a dark hallway and then at the end you just see like neon lights and like so you know steam and like it very much is like that kind of cinematic look but it was it was actually a small party um it was only one room and then there was like one main dance room and then there was a chill room Like it was like this like neon space carnival (laughs) and everything, I was it was blowing my mind. And then of course the music was like, I was inside the music, fully immersed, feeling it in like throughout my body, every sense is like ignited. And then we just started dancing. I feel like I wanted to just start dancing and I grew up dancing. You know, I've always been a big music lover and a dancer and I just kind of couldn't help myself. And then, you know, the rest of the night was just like discovery. It was like going into the chill room.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about the chill room. I grew up raving in the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. That's where I grew up. I didn't move to the Bay Area until the early 2000s. And there wasn't really so much of a chill room scene in the Midwest as there was, I think, on the West Coast. Uh If anything, the smaller room at uh, Midwest or Chicago parties was, like, even more hyper and crazy than the big room. Because, like, that's where the—like, the big room would be, like, maybe house music or trance. And then the side room would be, like, really hardcore, like, drum and bass or, like, you know, something that maybe wasn't as uh, amenable to, like, the broader audience. They'd be like, okay, put the people Mm -hmm. who are playing, like, the really crazy, aggressive music in the smaller room. And that's where you saw, like, the people— Freaking out the hardest and things like that. So I remember when um, the movie Groove came out, yes. which was this movie that came out, I believe, in the late nineties, kind of uh, a fictionalized look. 2000. Okay, two thousand at the at the at the Bay Area rave mm-hmm. scene, and my friends and I went to go see it. And in, this, in the scene in that movie where the characters get into the chill room, it's there's like massage tables mm-hmm. and like fruit and like it almost looks like a spa or something. And me and my friends were like cracking up we're like, what is that? Come on, this is like the Hollywood version of it, right? but you, you really had rooms like that out here back then, huh?
1: That's how it was. And maybe because of like the California, like yeah. maybe that's funny to hear because I didn't, I just assumed the chill room came with the rave package. So it'd be interesting to hear if like the New York scene had mm-hmm. that or even like the UK like where did that concept start
0: I will say just real quick before you describe your chill room experiences that I do remember one party that I went to in like an Oakland warehouse and the chill room they actually had gotten like sod, like grass, and like laid it out in the room. So like you walk in this room and it's like a grassy floor, which theoretically sounds really cool, but in real life it actually kind of made the whole room just smell like dirt.
1: (laughs) Oh, so it was actually real? It was
0: real grass. It wasn't like AstroTurf. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I know. Mm. Yeah, We. I didn't go to that one. I don't remember that. But I think the kind of the basic elements of a chill room um, were... Ambient music, so you had your more chill, yeah, like spa kind of music, or kind of like just more low-key. More like
0: down-tempo, like thievery corporation- type exactly. vibes.
1: Yeah, and um, I actually really enjoyed the chill rooms. I actually needed the chill rooms, because it, if, if things would just get overwhelming, I would just go to the chill room, mm-hmm. and um, everyone was like so friendly there. You could actually talk to people, because like the music wasn't as loud, and there was usually like mattresses, or you know, like cuddle puddles. Yeah, that's where you would find the cuddle puddles. So like, there would be like just mattresses like thrown about, or like sofas that they found off the street. oh <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, very questionable sofas. But you're just so relieved to like have a break and like sit or like lay down on a mattress, and then yeah, you would meet people or you would just be, like, eating balls and, like, massage it, have a massage train. And then there was usually, like, really pretty lighting. I feel like I want to say, like, pastels, you know, like, white Christmas lights. And then, yeah, you had your water stations and fruit. And the chill rooms were really lovely.
0: (laughs) You know, I haven't thought about this in so long, but I'm remembering one 420 party I went to in Oakland many years ago. And in the chill room... Like hanging from the ceiling, there was a giant doobie, and it was like made out of paper mache. Though it wasn't like nice. a real joint, but it was like a giant, you know, facsimile of a of a of a doob, and it actually like they put orange lights like inside, like the part where the um cherry would be and it like they had like a like a smoke machine or something inside of it so it was really like blowing out it wasn't marijuana smoke but it was like this amazing kind of fake yeah special effects it was really cool cool yeah so tell me about some of your favorite um venues or locations for parties because in the book you kind of break down chapters by like different parties Mm -hmm. and you um you know you went all over the bay but there were some really interesting um varied locations so at the east bay specifically that you partied at so take me through a little tour of the 90s east bay rave location
1: okay agenda um so yes so my first rave was in a nondescript warehouse um, near San Pablo in Oakland. And then there was this place in the city called the Deli, which was a smaller space. And they called it the Deli because it was like an operating deli during the day, which is like really gross to think because we would like smoke inside and um, but it was just actually the square space with a dance floor on the bottom. And then it had a cool balcony at the top and you could like look over at the party from the balcony and then that's where people would like be making out and like just be chilling so the deli we went to a few so that was like in in my beginning days and then the mayor at the time so this was like 1996 the mayor was Willie Brown and he like cracked down on the under on the scene and he was enforcing they were just they were on they were on to us they call it a rave and it's the latest kid craze millions of youngsters as young as age 10
0: flock to secret locations to party and dance through the night that's all night long often till eight or nine in the morning it sounds innocent but beneath the laser lights and loud music america's youth are rebelling in a new and dangerous way it's like anarchy for that like night and chaos fueled by blatant, brazen drug-taking. Raves are happening in cities and small towns, in farm fields and abandoned warehouses, after-hours bars or clubs, anywhere that's far from adult supervision. The result is sometimes
1: outrageous and risky behavior. And so
0: yeah, I remember hearing stories even of uh, police like confiscating turntables and things yes. like that. They
1: were like just shutting down all the parties left and right. And so it was a there was a little period where we were going and the parties would just be getting shut down. So then they moved them over to Oakland, and that we were like woohoo! And then it was like all these new spaces to explore. So the first one I believe this was around the time that home base emerged. And um, at the end of that summer, 1996,
0: was Megabuzz 1. Tell people where Homebase was and um, the scale of Mm -hmm. this location, because it's kind of legendary.
1: Yes, yes. Homebase is. Homebase was, and some people would argue this was like the beginning of the end, because this was kind of the first massive space. Although it's just... It was just a big warehouse. It was actually kind of your perfect rave space because so it was over by um, off of Heggenberger before the Oakland Airport. There is still the Denny's there. So if you know of the Denny's, that's um, it's around. There was another warehouse over there called 85th and Baldwin that was like on the other side of Heggenberger. So there was just lots of warehouses around there. Yeah,
0: unfortunately, the actual home base building I think burned down a couple of years ago.
1: It did, yeah. It burned down, and you had all these ravers like, "Oh no!" Like all those memories are like up in flames. And I remember I discovered this when I was writing the book because I was like, "What's what's at home base now?" And I found that there's this YouTube video.
0: I noticed like around that area there was like a black cloud. Of smoke, like accumulating from somewhere just right off this freeway. Oh well, you know, a big building's on fire. Oh well, and the closer I got, the more I realized the building that was on fire was Home Base. You know about that venue? What's that? You know what that? You know what that venue is? Oh, I, I used to go there like fifty years ago. Really? Did they used to throw those underground parties there. So I'm about to cry. Home Base is burning down. <laughs> I can't believe it.
1: Yeah, it was it was tragic for no one got hurt in the fire because it was still just um, it used to be like an airport storage. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think by the time it burned down, they had stopped having parties there yes. years and years ago yeah, because of course down. the crack uh, the crackdown you know eventually spread across the, right. the entire country yeah. essentially. And we like, can get to that later, but <laughs>
1: right, yeah. So homebase well, uh-huh. was really exciting because it went from hundreds of people to thousands with home base. And so like, that was really a turning point, but it was still a really cool space because you had like one main big room where you'd have like the head, you know, the headline DJs. And then you had, you actually had these like other smaller warehouse rooms where you could have the jungle room and the trance and and then you had an outside. And for me, an outside was always just heaven because you just, you need some fresh air.
0: Just on the fresh air thing, I think, you know, also this was back in the era when people would just chain smoke indoors. And so you would come home from these parties and just absolutely reek. I I mean, it was disgusting. We smoked
1: everywhere, like the deli, like that place. Like we smoked indoors in like carpeted places. Like you're just so gross.
0: What about some of the other party locations in the East Bay? Because it wasn't just Oakland. You were kind of hitting yeah. some of, like, the outer lying suburbs of the East Bay, right? Yeah. For For different kinds of uh, raves.
1: Yeah. Like, we we were down to to venture out. Um, so there was a really cool party at a roller rink in Pittsburgh by Antioch. And actually, a lot of raver kids were from out there and conquered and you know, San Ramon, and so they were stoked, because, you know, it was, like, these closer venues for them, and so the roller rink was really cool, and so that one was, like, I describe it in the book, it was just, like, one giant shell room, because it's, like, you had this smooth floor, because of roller rinks, but the big question, no, there was no roller skating allowed, <laughs> uh, which was probably a very good thing. So yeah. the roller skates were off limits. A lot
0: of the parties I went to in Chicago were were at roller rinks. Oh, okay, yeah. cool.
1: Because yeah. yeah, you don't really have them out here very much. I feel like that's like very much more of a Midwest yeah, um, kind of thing. So it was really it, it was a big novelty for us.
0: What about the outdoor parties?
1: Yes. So the first official outdoor party that is like possibly my favorite party still was called Freedom. And it was 4th of July weekend, 1996, and it was out by past Livermore. And again, like, we were like, cool, this, you know, it kind of always just, f- it was that feeling of the treasure hunt again. It was like, we got the map point. It's like, where are we going? It's like dark. There's like winding roads. And, and then, you know, I remember driving and it was me and my best friend, partner in crime, Casey, that was the night we were planning on candy flipping for the first time. Um, Can you explain? Yes. So candy flipping is when you mix ecstasy and acid. By then, we had uh, I'd done acid several times. It's a
0: great combo, like peanut butter and chocolate.
1: It it actually it really <laughs> is a great combo because you have like the physical experience from ecstasy, and then you have the mind experience with the acid and. You know they kind of like overlap and like merge and yeah it's that at that point that was like the highest i'd been um we'd both we'd done both separately several times and then we heard about candy flipping and so we were like (laughs) well outdoor rave that sounds like a great place to candy flip were you mostly
0: getting your drugs from kids at your school or at scoring them at parties
1: oh yeah no school was like this completely different world um, we were getting the drugs at the parties. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So what we, we were just so strategic that we would usually try to score our drugs for the following weekend. So we were like ready to go. Because if not, when we got there, we were on a mission to find the drugs first thing.
0: Right. Because, yeah. like, you know, acid lasts a really long time. Yeah. So if you're only going to be at a party for, like, five hours or six you hours. You drop that yeah. acid. Like,
1: <laughs> we would drop it as soon as we saw, like, as soon as we knew we were almost there. Because exactly, acid is, like, the longest high. And um, and then we would, when we started to feel the acid, then we would drop the E, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. that's a shorter high. So I just remember, like, driving on this windy road, by Altamont Pass. And then we were like, oh my God, are we lost? There's like no sign of life out here. And then we see this light coming out of the ground in the distance. And it was, you know, it was like, there it is. And it
0: wasn't a hallucination. It was actually there. No, I think we had just taken (laughs) our acid.
1: So no, we saw this pit of light over the hill and we were like, there it is. And so then we yeah, arrive and there's like a dirt parking lot and then we're just like running to the party. And freedom was actually thrown every year. And it was a camp out, like people would camp out. And so once we got into the party, it was like tents were everywhere. So it was like, you had to kind of weave your way through the tents to get to the dance floor. And it was like dusty dance floor and you know, everything was outside. You know, you had the sky, it was just a really beautiful, it really made me be like, I only want to party outside now.
0: I'm amazed that you remember so many of your outfits that you wore to these different parties. It seems like you were really into, one of the, it seems like one of the things that drew you in was yeah. the fashion. So... And the fashion kind of evolved over the years. So take me through that uh, evolution of raver fashion. Talk about some of your favorite accessories and outfits. And explain Jinkos to people who might not remember that amazing brand of jeans.
1: Yeah, actually I have this photo here. So can you describe
0: Um, what we're looking at here?
1: Okay, so we're looking at, this is a photo of me and three friends. This is a morning after photo. And this was 1998, so I'm with uh, three good friends, and you'll notice like lots of fabric on the pants. Basically,
0: like one pair of Jinkos had enough denim in them to make like ten pairs of skinny jeans. Yes, <laughs>
1: like you, like you look at. Casey, it's like, where are his legs even? Like, it's just like a waterfall of denim. Yeah, it's
0: like you're wearing like a wedding dress worth of denim on each leg.
1: Yes. <laughs> and I was wearing khaki Jinkos which I really enjoyed because they were just lighter and it was summer. This photo was summer. So this was kind of the typical California raver look, um, at least for us. So Jinkos there were two brands that did the super wide pants. It was Jinko and Kickwear. And both of them were out of Southern California, so you could find them all over California. And that was like the uniform pant. And most kids wore them. You definitely had some kids who the style was a bit more club kid, like black, stretchy, you know, bootleg, boot cuts. There was a lot of those halter tops with like kind of the psychedelic prints on them so we had i had some girlfriends who were kind of more into that style but i really liked the androgynous comfy jinko look and then baby tees for girls um, which was like very much the look anyway like lots of girls were wearing baby tees and around the bay area baggy pants were like i mean it was the 90s like it was all about the saggy baggy pants but these were just baggy pants on a whole level (laughs) right
0: there's there's baggy pants and there's pants that you could probably literally parachute with if you jumped out of a plane and these like covered like we weren't
1: satisfied unless the hem covered our shoes
0: oh my god they got so dirty
1: oh yeah Yeah. well and that's the thing like you'll see here you'd just be dragging we had to cut the bottoms yeah so like we'd have to buy the length a little longer because we knew that we were gonna have to cut the bottoms over time because like you'd get home from a party and there it, it was like especially when it was like rainy in winter you'd have a la- a thick like border of just disgusting right. you're dragging
0: your pants through <laughs> these puddles and then the water's like seeping up through the yes, legs and then it's, your
1: socks would get wet yeah, and disgusting. like we were pretty grimy yeah
0: and then what like a lot of visors a lot of yes. like candy jewelry so, and
1: then um yeah we were i wasn't didn't become a candy raver so uh-huh. candy raver are those stereotypical raver photos you see with like these can't bracelets with the pony beads up their arms Mm -hmm. and then like the pacifier necklace and just everywhere, colorful beads. So we did do the candy jewelry, um, but it was more just in the classic sense of like we would exchange bracelets among our friends and I definitely made them, definitely wore them. You can kind of see I have some here. And then I think because of the influence of hip hop, in the Bay Area, there was a lot of the brands were like the hip hop brands. So well, Adidas. Adidas is like your classic raver and that even was in Europe. Like Adidas was the big raver brand and we were very brand loyal there. But then you had Timberland and the North Face And then, like, the guys wore visors. Like, a lot of
0: skateboarder brands, too, right? Like, Echo and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And um, I had a boyfriend who was a skater, and he wore Etnies. And um, there was this store on Telegraph Avenue that was just so cool. And, like, the hottest, coolest skater guys worked there. And um, they sold extra large t shirts and hats and accessories. And this was a brand out of New York. And anything out of New York was just like so cool. And then Adidas track suits like, that's a very classic Raver look. Um, I had a collection of Adidas track jackets. Yeah,
0: a lot of like bright primary colors.
1: Yes, like we were very colorful. Anything Adidas, we were just like, and Adidas sneakers. And like, it was either like the shell toes or later we got into more like actually like running shoes. Cause it was just, it was just more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. For when, me, when you're
0: dancing all night long, it comfortable became, shoes is kind of key.
1: Yeah. Like that's one of the reasons I think also I liked the chinkos and the oversized like shirts and fleeces and stuff because I just wanted to be comfortable. Yeah. Like if you're dancing and drugging for hours, like when I would see the girls, like even actually my first rave, I was wearing tight clothes because I didn't really know what to wear. And I remember being uncomfortable and I was on I was on acid. It was like suffocating. And then just dancing in it and the movement the clothing created, it just was like this distinct aesthetic of the scene.
0: Just thinking back, there was like so much fabric that everyone was wearing. It was like almost like you, you could kind of cocoon yourself in all these giant fleeces and, and the pants. So that's what people were wearing. Mm -hmm. And you you get a real good sense of what people are talking about by reading your book, Raver Girl, because you actually brought a tape recorder or a digital, you know, recorder, voice recorder to these parties, which is astonishing to me. Oh, my gosh, you've still got it.
1: Well, this is not the one, because I think I broke, like, (laughs) (laughs) three or the... So, yes, I had a dictaphone, which for people who don't know what a dictaphone is, it's just those tape recorders handheld with the mini tapes. And I don't know what compelled me. One day I was in like my dad's office and it was sitting on the dresser. And I was like, hmm, like, let me bring one of these to a party and like record us. And then from then on, I just bring it to parties and record myself, record my friends our conversations. Here is it. Here is it. This is Courtney.
0: Hi, I'm Courtney. Where
1: are you guys from? San Diego. And what, how are you guys feeling? Um, okay. 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 Different. okay. Yeah. I have one of these too. Yeah.
0: They're That's, great. They, they are them later and fabulous. So many new friends. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You're like, wait, who was that person? Oh,
1: wait it's mostly just really embarrassing and funny and I'm just like oh my god I was like so crazy but I was having so much fun and it's just such innocent well innocent but not innocent fun and it was just such a creative outlet for me and um that was why I kept doing it every weekend just because I wasn't you know I went to school and There just wasn't enough, like, creative expression for me at school. Well,
0: it seems like that's one of the things that was a very positive aspect of the raving culture is that it brought together kids from all over a region. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in your high school, maybe you're like a weirdo or you're into Mm -hmm. different things than like the cliques that are sort of common in high schools. But when you go to a rave it's like all the little weirdos from every high school kind of coming together and it was also a real refuge for um queer kids and lgbtq kids when especially back in the 90s homophobia was i mean still horrible but even really really worse back then and um you know when i think about the first kids that i was friends with who were queer it was like kids i met through raving
1: exactly yeah and my best friend um and partner in crime was a gay guy and um he was my first gay friend and he actually we went to the same high school and um once I went to a couple raves I told him about it and he was like oh my god I want to go and then he just got totally hooked too but I learned so much about his struggles and um He actually came out to his family when he was young, like 12. And that was like really admirable, especially in the 90s. Like you just did not hear about that.
0: Right. I think there was one openly gay man in my entire high school.
1: Yeah. And so, um, and he wasn't, the thing was, and for him too, like at school, he wasn't, he wasn't outward about it. Like he dressed, you know, like kind of a typical 90s kid until like then he started to dress like a raver and he didn't like flash it around um, but then we would go to raves and he would be so comfortable and he would just like let his gay flag fly and
0: i mean other gay kids too
1: yes totally and like we had a lot in our crew and it just i had crushes on this one friend who was so beautiful and I just, like, was like, maybe, you know, maybe one party he'll make out with me. <laughs> but yeah. that never happened. Yeah. And um, because there what, like, I even made out with some of my girlfriends. Like, there was, like, that melding and that experimentation and that openness mm-hmm. that was really exciting and really freeing. Yeah, that was a really beautiful part of the scene. And um, that was actually <laughs> what um, Casey... Once he explained that to his parents, so like the parents, right, <laughs> they were pretty strict. You know, they were very protective of him because of, you know, what with, with because of him and being a target, possibly. And but that was what he explained to his parents was like, this is a place where I feel like I can be myself. And there's other gay kids. And once he explained that to them, they actually were OK with him going. Yeah, it was really interesting because he got permission then because his parents were, you know, they loved him and they wanted him to feel like he could be himself somewhere because he couldn't really do that at high school, typical high school.
0: Did you find any good clips that might be... uh embarrassing slash interesting for okay. the listeners of East Bay I, I yesterday? Hope
1: so. I hope so. It's, I have about 20 different parties that I've taped, wow. and um, not, it's not a lot of good stuff. It's just a lot of us like going off and being really kooky. Well, it
0: seemed like it was a good way for you to meet other kids, too. Yes. Right? Like You're running out of this tape recorder, and everyone will start talking to you.
1: Yeah, it's true. It gave me a good excuse to go up and meet people, and I think there were probably a lot of introverts who liked rapes because A, you could take drugs to help you become more social and B, you, like you kind of said before, like there were these other outcasts, you know, who didn't quite feel like they could fit in at their school. And so, yeah, so I would go up and interview people and then start talking to them and then, you know, maybe become friends. Well, everyone became friends with each other, right? So yes, I do have a bit. This is actually from... Megapuzz 1, which was the home base party, which we were talking about.
0: And this was like around 96 or so? Yes,
1: this was Labor Day weekend, 1996. And I had been to... Oh, well, I brought my master list here. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) So, hold on. What we're looking at here is a handwritten, very neat penmanship, by the way, uh, list of... Raves that you went to with the dates and the names of the parties <laughs> and all your nicknames, it looks like oh, at the yeah, top.
1: <laughs> Just in case I forgot.
0: Okay, so what were your nicknames? And then tell me some of the names of some of the more memorable parties.
1: Um, so the first one that stuck was Ferrari Ravioli. You know, we had been to a handful of raves and we would meet these people and they'd be, I'd be like, What's your name? Flower. And it's like, okay, obviously their name wasn't Flower, but I was like, oh, people have, you know, these alter egos. <laughs> it's like, I want an alter ego, so...
0: Like instead of the nom de plume, it's like the nom de rave. Yes, <laughs> yes, and
1: I was like, oh, fun, okay, I want one. And so I became Ferrari Ravioli, <laughs> and... is that
0: still your Twitter handle?
1: Yes, it is my... Because <laughs> it's just so good. It's just so random and funny. It rolls
0: off the tongue. It,
1: it does, has, like, nice alliteration... Yeah. Can
0: I see the uh, list of rave names again? Yeah. Let's see what we got here. So Juju Beats, Juju Planet Rock. Oh, that was down in LA. Okay, Playhouse, Tribal Massive. And the
1: Come, first one I ever pleasures. went to was Eon. The
0: first one you ever went to is called Eon. The first one I ever went to was called uh, When You Wish Upon a Star.
1: Okay, don't have that one. I do
0: remember that. Well, that was in a roller rink on the south side of Chicago. Oh, right gathering funk school spelled with a ph audio tastic breakdown freedom tune town
1: yeah, rewind
0: then, metropolis tickle
1: and towards the end um i was living in la so that's why there's la parties so i got started it, to, and there's one in sacramento yeah so mm-hmm. all the early ones are all bay area it was just this like fascinating underground world from the flyers to the music and the people, it just created this world that I, I could just be myself, have a release from, I had lots of anxiety when I was a teenager and um, I could dance and and just like do it all over again the next weekend. <laughs>
0: You just mentioned the flyers, and I think that was one of the first things that caught my attention because I was obsessed with music way before I started going to raves, but I remember I was going to punk shows before I started going to raves, and punk flyers were like scrawled, black and white, uh, you know, ink, like photocopied, like probably stolen... Uh, photocopies some like the local kinkos or whatever like ripped like quarter sheets just like the cheapest crappiest flyers you can imagine i mean awesome really cool drawings i still there's it's a different aesthetic that i appreciate but then compared to rave flyers which are like these giant glossy i mean they started out yeah like this one for smarties it's all these kind of rubber balls very colorful, colorful these cool dj names it's all very sort of like 90s psychedelic and then I remember, like later after Rave's group uh, yeah, sort of this blew up. The
1: 1998 one. So that can you one's... describe that one? So, yeah. So, this was uh, Planet Rock, uh, Saturday, January 17th, 1998, and in touch production. And by then, I actually knew the kids who were throwing this party. But you can really see here on the back, there's one, two, three, four different rooms. And there's just so much information compared to, like, the earlier flyers.
0: Yeah, all the locations where you can buy the tickets, who's doing the lighting. Um, yeah. And wow, I mean, there's there's some pretty big names on this flyer that people still are probably familiar with, like, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang, these these hip-hop pioneers. Yeah. Uh, Dell the Funky Homo Sapien from Hieroglyphics. Yeah, Funkmaster like, Flex.
1: Yeah, and this is when things were getting more massive, and a lot of people poo-poo the scene because it, it it you know this is just when it's started to get more about making money right mm-hmm. um. A lot but of the bad talent. drugs
0: going around yeah, by them. lots of like Katie promoters including
1: myself kids were getting really strung out but yeah. look at this talent like
0: it's, it's an amazing lineup and yeah. um I mean I was just gonna say I remember once uh the promoters started getting more ambitious the flyers started getting more and more baroque so oh, you yeah. would have like these giant like, like poster sized flyers that people would be handing out and putting under you would walk out from a party as the sun is coming up and under the uh, windshield wiper of your car there'd be like 20 party yes, flyers right. and they were oh God, massive that. You could, like, hold them over your head to, like, block the rain if it was raining out. Totally. These flyers got so big and complicated. I feel,
1: like, too high of a picture. My um My best friend Casey, he, and a lot of people did this, he took the flyers and he decorated his walls of his room and the doors of his room. So I have a picture of us, like, we used to, like, pose in front of his flyers. It's just wall the whole wall is covered with these colorful flyers yeah a
0: lot of cartoon imagery and things like that like you know alice in wonderland type stuff or different cartoons
1: well because the idea um i think was like you know you you hand these out at parties and then people receive them when they're like tripping and so like if you saw this on acid it would be like whoa trippy so cool so this one
0: says intoxication and there's like two little kids sort of running through this field of bubbles and flowers Mm it's very very trippy and and this yeah. was
1: Bagok tribe, um, and so like there was, I would say who the party promoter was. This was a two-year anniversary, and then it was like always the lineup on the back, and I I used I taped them up, so that's why there's.
0: So this is like a really typical lineup. I feel like yeah. if you look through old Bay Area um, rave flyers from the '90s, you you see some of the same names over and over mm-hmm. again. People like Gino, Garth, um, DJ think. Dan. Yes,
1: DJ Dan was like. Probably, you know, the one most idolized Mm -hmm. by my friends who wanted to be DJs. And
0: I know some of these people are still going strong, like the Sunset Crew, which which sort of brings me to my next question. So there would be a lot of people, and I would count myself in this camp, who would go to a party. You know, you go at maybe midnight, you go home when the sun's coming up, and then you sleep like the entire next day. Mm -hmm. You didn't always go to sleep. <laughs> you would sometimes go to, you know, a friend's house, shower, change, and then go to a Sunday oh, morning after party right. in San Francisco and then go back across the bridge to go to the sunset yeah. parties at like Point Malate yeah. or the Berkeley Marina or some of these other spots. Um How did you have the energy to stay up for, like, two, three days straight dancing, partying nonstop the entire time at the age of, what, like, 16, 17?
1: Yeah, 16, 17. Well, I think just right there, being 16 and 17, you have the energy to do that. But we, of course, had help (laughs) with drugs. Um, Initially, we did the, you know, yeah, arrive there around midnight or so. And then we would leave around... I used to call us vampires because we would leave when, like, we saw that the sky started to get that blue right before the sun comes up. And um, we would just go and usually smoke a bowl somewhere in Oakland. And um, There's a
0: great uh, picture that you posted on one of your articles where you can actually see the Tribune Tower in the background as you and your friends are, like, shuffling out of this rave like little vampires in the morning. Yes,
1: yes. And... Um, I'll never forget that morning light, you know? I never thought I would see so many sunrises because I was, like, (laughs) never a morning person until then. And, um, yeah, so initially we would do that, and then we would just go home to, like, one of our houses and, like, nap. That was kind of, like, the classic. A lot of people did that. But then once we got into some harder drugs, crystal meth, we, um, you know, and that just kind of started circulating around the scene, our friends and... It was also when a lot of us had already done a lot of ecstasy, done a lot of acid. I had a bad acid trip. And so I was like, I'm not doing acid anymore. So then I'm like, what's my next drug? And um, so psychedelics were what we kind of started off with. There was lots of psychedelics around the Bay Area scene because I think of the the roots and psychedelics in the Bay Area.
0: And I think actually, um, zooming out a little bit, I've read some uh, articles about this guy, but apparently there was an acid chemist who was manufacturing like hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of hits of LSD in the 90s. And he was operating out of a decommissioned missile silo in like Iowa or Kansas or something like that. And he eventually got busted. Mm. And that's why you didn't see LSD around for a couple years as much after that. DEA agents believe the LSD lab is one of the largest in the world. It was like how oh. Owlsley in the 60s was yes. like supplying like the entire West Coast. Yeah. All it takes is like one chemist who really knows what they're doing to like basically get an entire generation of kids stoned on, on really pure acid.
1: Yeah.
0: Looking back, I I can see how raves got kind of a bad name, especially like in the late 90s and early 2000s after all the, you know, 2020 and all the Mm -hmm. kind of like famous news shows started going undercover with cameras and showing these kids just parting their brains out all night long. Um, And then after that, there was all kinds of legislation like the crack house Mm -hmm. law that made uh, promoters liable for, you know, the the drugs that were being, yeah, the Rave Act, right, that were being sold. And some people, you know, ended up facing some pretty steep jail sentences and big fines over that. But on the other hand, like we were talking about, there was this whole plural ethos, uh, Mm. peace, love, unity, respect. And, it was like a very loving scene, you know, it brought people together like we were talking about, it's a real refuge, especially for LGBTQ kids and in any scene there's gonna be shady elements, of course. And that probably became more prevalent as the scene got bigger and bigger and bigger and people realized there was all these kids there to take advantage of or, you know, rob in the parking lot or whatever, which certainly happened at more than one party. But it seems like your book, even though you could some, somewhat read it as like a bit of a cautionary tale, like you get a little too spun out in the end, of course, yeah. um, but you reeled yourself back in and got yourself back on track. And so I think it's kind of sad in a way that there isn't an outlet like this for, mm-hmm. for young people these days, just because I think about how much I got out of having a place where I could bond with other kids and kind of learn how to spread my wings and have a little mm-hmm. bit of freedom And, uh, you know, it just seems like that really is an option for for the generation of kids coming up in in this world.
1: I know. I mean, I think part of the that vibe was you felt you could play. Now I have a a four year old son and I see how he just plays all the time. And I'm like, that's all we wanted to do. (laughs) Like, you know, I became an adolescent. The hormones kicked in. I got self-conscious of my body like it just society started, you know, I started to be, I read Vogue, which is probably like not, you know, I was like, I need to be skinny and beautiful. Well,
0: that was back when Kate Moss was like on the cover. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And like, luckily my my parents raised me with a lot of confidence. So um, I did not have an eating disorder, but I had a lot of friends who did. And so, you know, you teenager, just the awkward years. But yeah, like we would go to these parties and it was really where we could play. You know, when you think about social media and screens because we experience that. And like, I'm like, I, are there places? I mean, I know there's, I mean, we know there's the festivals, right? There's EDM, mm-hmm. there's like those giant places, but. Yeah, like
0: lightning in a bottle, things like
1: that. Yeah, and I feel like, and there's Burning Man, of course. Yeah. So there's still places, but thought, you know, when I see the phones at like the EDC, it's just like, we didn't have, like, it was not all about capturing the experience it was like we were just in the experience
0: well plus i think the barriers are a lot higher now in the sense that tickets to those things are like hundreds of dollars whereas like you were saying before for these parties you know you could go on any weekend it was like five or ten bucks you could hop in a car with friends it wasn't like a big trip that you had to plan Mm. and i'm thinking that raves really are kind of go hand in hand with like psychedelic drugs. And there there does seem to be like a loosening of restrictions, uh, not only legally, but also kind of um, the, the social norms. I think the demonization of drugs like LSD and ecstasy has been lessening in the last oh, couple of years yeah. due to, you know, people uh, doing medical research on the benefits, uh, how they can help with depression and PTSD and things like that. And so now that it seems like we're maybe on the cusp or even undergoing like this kind of renaissance of these drugs that were demonized for so long. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you have a four-year-old son. It's easy to imagine, you know, 10, 15 years from now. He's a young man. He's a teenager. Drugs are more widely available. They're uh, less demonized. How would you feel if you're if you're in your parents' position now all these years later and you are you got a high schooler who's like, I want to start going to raves?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because I've... I, I know this this question's going to come at me. So I've thought about it. Um, I'm like, uh, wow, I'm putting this book out there. It's a tell all. It's, you know, I. And you definitely tell all. And I tell all. And I tell all from drug experience, from sexual experiences. You know, I feel like as a memoirist, that's what you have to do. So I'm like, hmm. I've asked my husband. I'm like, how old do you think Donovan should be when he is able to read my book? <laughs> And we just laugh about it. Um, <laughs> but I, th- <laughs> I think I'm going to be, because I still dabble. Um, I microdose here and there. And um, because of everything that's happened with cannabis and, I mean, originally MDMA and LSD was used in, you know, therapy. And because of the government and the crackdowns in, like, the 70s and 80s, like, that's how it got demonized yeah that's why it, it was very dangerous what we were doing because weed was illegal and my dad was very concerned about um you know there's a funny conversation in the book with my dad where he says uh we would um actually rather have you smoke weed than cigarettes and he's like but weed is illegal so you need to be very careful and so I was like, whoa, okay, dad knows that we smoke weed. Um, but it was very profound because he knew that the health benefits, um, because he experienced it himself, he the health benefits of cannabis um, just totally outweighed cigarettes. So my dad would give me interesting advice like that. So with my son, I'm gonna be open with him and it'll be really interesting to see in 10 years, in 10 years, he'll be 14 um, where, how far we have come. So I think it kind of, we have to kind of go with the flow on that, but I think I'm going to be, you know, kind of learn from what my parent, you know, my parents did a really great job, but like I said earlier, they could have been more open with their experience. And I think I will be very open with Donovan. So then if he does want to experiment, you know, by then, I mean, there's even drug testing kits now, like I'll just want to lay the groundwork for him to have a safe, enjoyable experience
0: right and maybe you could even tag along
1: well yeah i mean (laughs) you know there was it's funny there's a there's a party in the book where casey's parents want to come they come to the rave because they want to see what it's all about and i will definitely be that parent and but i'll be like partying (laughs) like i probably won't consume but um yeah I'll be there in case he needs me or if anybody needs you know I think that's the thing like we all also looked out for each other um and even though you did start to hear you know kids did start to OD and I did experience a party where there were a couple deaths and so all that did start to happen but if we could we would help you know, if a friend OD'd or was in a K-hole, like, we were there for each other. Because yeah. you had to be, like, there, were, there weren't there were any any police. We didn't want the police. So we had to, like, help each other out, and that was part of the community aspect. So, yeah, so maybe I can just bring that to wherever. If I end up going to a rave with my son, just kind of help out and bring that spirit. Sonata I love you more than anyone. Else. I love who you are i love like the things that you do for the world i just love you very much no. Nothing. No. okay i love you love me, yeah. me that. Right. Come
0: on. well reading the book really does transport you back to a, a very magical era that um i can't believe was like 25 or so years ago it's wild how fast that time has flown by um before we go any last memories you want to share any shout outs you want to give
1: Any last minute? Well, I'll start with the shout outs. I mean, I just want to thank everyone in the scene back then. You know who you are. Um, All the people who threw the party. It was such a DIY effort. And, um, you know, people risked, they put like money and time and energy into it. And it was all so we could all have this magical experience. So I just want to thank like all the promoters and the producers and And then, of course, the DJs. And I don't think I've mentioned who my favorite DJs were. So DJ Dan and uh, Simon and Jim Hopkins and Mark Farina, Donald Glaude. um, I'm probably forgetting some. uh, Paulina Taylor, uh, who was a happy hardcore DJ, Thank you for creating the music, because without the music, it just wouldn't have been <laughs> the same. And um, thank you, all my friends, and who, you know, we all helped each other, supported each other. It was a magical time. It had some challenges, for sure, but it ultimately helped me find out and embrace who I was as a creative, independent woman, and... um Any last funny memories? Well, there's a lot of them in the book, and in the book are the ones that came out of the cobwebs. So other than what we've talked about, I'd say if you want the best memories there in the book.
0: The book is called Raver Girl, Coming of Age in the 90s by Samantha Durbin. Samantha, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. As always, you can see photos related to this episode at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. First of all, massive thanks to everybody supporting this show through Patreon. If it wasn't for you, none of this could happen. So thank you for keeping East Bay Yesterday alive. Also, thanks to all the DJs and producers and promoters who made the scene what it was. For this episode's music, I grabbed clips from live DJ sets by DJ Dan and Mark Farina that were recorded back in 1996 and 97. I also used a bunch of clips from a Jim Hopkins mix called San Francisco Groove that featured all Bay Area artists. Jim Hopkins has preserved and remastered tons of old mixtapes for a project called the San Francisco Disco Preservation Society. You can find more about that at sfdps.org. It's a really cool project. Check it out. Also, shout out to Lee Liu, who posted the YouTube video about Home Base. And also everyone who posts on the I Raved in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 90s. Facebook group. Your photos, your memories, your music, all of it helped inspire today's episode. Uh, Also, I've never actually mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've been a DJ for about 20 years now. Uh, Just a six-hour set in a barn outside of Gilroy a few weeks ago, actually. That was kind of a crazy night. Anyway, if anyone out there is throwing a party and uh, wants to see me getting busy behind the decks, drop me a line sometime. Okay, one last request. If you dug this episode, please share it on social media. Tell your friends, spread the word. However you can let people know about the show, I'd really appreciate it. I've uh, also got a newsletter where I talk about upcoming local history events and news. You can sign up for that too. Uh, Okay, I think that's going to do it for this week. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, I gotta stop
0: it there. <laughs> and that's a good place to stop. <laughs>